since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. And you're joining us here on the Bix Pod, uh, talking Shakespeare and the Taming of the Shrew. Yes. Um, and to start us off, Lindsay has the honor this time oh. of giving us a 30-second plot synopsis. This went so well last time. So well. Aiden. I got like through one twentieth of the story. Let's <laughs> yeah, see well, if you, you can do better. you maybe go through an act, right? Yeah, maybe. So we'll aim for better than that. And you'll, William you'll Shakespeare's succeed. Taming of the Shrew. Yes, you have 30 seconds. We have a timer ready. Uh, you can start now. All right, so we have a father, two daughters. One is beautiful and charming. The other is shrewish and mean. He will not allow the charming one to marry until the eldest shrewish one is married. Enter Petruchio, a man who decides he is going up for the challenge. He marries Katerina and tames her, possibly by the end of the play. Is that the end? I missed the whole comic <laughs> subplot. I really did. 30 seconds is not a long time. It is really not. It is It is wow. not a good time. It's really not. It's really but, not good. Um, you, I mean, you, I mean, you, you got the the gist of it. Yeah. There's, it's that dynamic of the older sister uh, has to be married before the younger one does. Yeah. And shenanigans ensue, basically, yeah. is what See, that would have been to. so much better. Boy meets girl. <laughs> girl rebuffs boy. Shenanigans ensue. Yeah. That really should have okay. been what I said. Well, you were close. You were you were most of the way there. And much better than I did uh, previous on uh, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. So, yeah. well done. Um, so, yeah, that is the, the play we're talking about. Uh, there is a comic subplot. There are multiple marriages, as was uh, the case with a lot of Shakespeare's comedies. Yep. Um, and... But this play is notable for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, the shrew character uh, is kind of an archetype. Uh, yeah, like later later plays in the Jacobean period and, and into the Restoration would have the fop and the dandy yeah. and whatnot. Now you have this shrew character that doesn't... I mean, I suppose there is still shrew-like characters around. Yeah. There are characters like that around today, but we don't call them shrews. So it's hard to... You tell someone... Oh, the taming of the shrew, and they picture the the marmot like vole like creature that <laughs> yes. you know lives in burrows. I don't know what shrews I don't know what are, shoes are either. But um, they, it's not really commonly understood today as a thing, but it was at the time. The shrew was a very common character. Yeah, and so that 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 kind of. Uh... Archetype has carried on through the ages and come down to us, and and various other characters. Uh, you know the the overbearing wife you know in every sitcom or just of sometimes the, even just the opinionated woman yes that, you know yes exactly that's with, still with post second wave feminism or even post first wave feminism that's that's kind of the the character that we deal with today yep um and it's interesting in uh the context of the play because this is not the first shrew play that existed and at the time period do tell it or perhaps it was uh so there is uh if you read about this play at all you will learn that there is actually another version of this play potentially uh called the taming of a shrew um and 
the version that we have uh, here today is from the first folio, uh, and it is the Taming of the Shrew, and it's the uh, generally agreed upon uh, Shakespeare canon. It is the Shakespearean play. It has a lot of his kind of typical wordplay, and we'll get into some of that in the in the future. But Taming of a Shrew um, has some unique differences. They both have uh, that play within a play narrative. There's the Christopher Sly character at the mm-hmm. start of Taming of the Shrew, uh, who gets set, gets told that this play is being put on for you, Master, because you're kind of being uh, gaslit into believing that you're a uh, nobleman today. Um, but in Taming of the Shrew, the Shakespeare folio version, uh, that plot just disappears after the first act. Uh, it never comes back. Taming of a Shrew has uh, those characters return a couple more times, uh, including at the end. There's a, an interesting turnabout that we can talk about. Um, a Shrew also featured uh, different names for characters, uh, a few twists of who got with who and how mm-hmm. it all worked out. Uh, but for the most part... It, it matched very closely with Timmy of the Shrew. To the point that people often wonder if this is maybe an earlier version of the Shrew that um, that Shakespeare wrote, that maybe Shakespeare had a hand in writing a Shrew or something. Or Yeah, there's a couple, there's three basic different theories. One is that, yeah, someone either was remembering the Shrew play mm-hmm. uh, and just wrote, it, it, down wrote it down. And, or... Yeah, or uh, the possibility that it was a entirely different play um or if at some point shakespeare either edited a shrew into the shrew mm-hmm. or it just got refined over the years mm-hmm. as was being performed and then the final version is the one they kind i kind of like the down. idea that this is um almost like a bad quarto version of the yeah. shrew that yeah. a shrew is like the bad quarto version of romeo and juliet that yeah. that you know surfaces every once in a while but yeah. um yeah, it's it's an interesting play. I didn't read it. I just read the synopsis, and I was especially interested in the way that the Christopher Sly uh, frame narrative kind of wraps up in that one, um, which is, I think, we'll talk about that a little bit more um, when we get to it. But um, yeah, I think I think diving into that historical context, coming back to the shrew and this idea that women at the time were supposed to be chaste, silent, and obedient. Yes, chaste it. meaning, um, you know, virginal and, and I don't know, how else do you describe Uncorrupted, chaste? I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not just, it's not just sexual, although it yes. is primarily sexually concerned with sex, but it's also just uh, mm-hmm. protecting your virtue and being yeah. uh, a kind woman as well yeah. as is considered part of your chastity. Yeah. Um, uh, silence, obviously, meaning not one to have opinions yes, just exactly. to be silent and to be obedient so to obey first your father as the the lord of the household you grew up in and then your husband eventually when you get married um and it was assumed that everybody would get married which is what makes taming of the shrew so interesting is uh katarina is unable to be married and it becomes a burden it's understood to be a burden on her poor, suffering Bianca, who her name even means white. Like yeah. Bianca, she's so chaste she's and so pure, yeah. pure yeah. that her name is pure. Yeah. And and this is this terrible burden because her sister is unmarried, unmarriageable. Yeah. Bianca can't be married. And yeah. so it, it's, it's not just a burden for Katerina, which it certainly would have been. It's a burden on her father, Baptista Minola, who is has to support his daughter into her probably early 20s. Yeah. At that time, that would have been spinster. Oh, so old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then also uh, poor Bianca, who can't get married. So it's it's this whole idea that, that marriage is the be-all, end-all for a woman. And when that can't be achieved for whatever reason, 
uh, society kind of falls apart, or at least the, the social structure of the family and, and the, the web that comes out from that kind of falls apart. And that's interesting to contrast with kind of the way uh, the Elizabethan social structure was kind of changing as as Shakespeare was writing and mm-hmm. through into the Jacobean period where, um, you know, it, it, women became uh, and their chastity and silence and obedience became a really big topic because for a couple of reasons, num- number one being the fact that there was a queen, mm-hmm. uh, the, the monarch and the head of the Church of England was a woman. Yeah. Uh, and this was confusing in a line in an era where women were supposed to be silent, chaste and obedient. Uh Queen Elizabeth, of course, was chased uh, famously. Uh, ostensibly. Yes, ostensibly. <laughs> I'm at sure least, she got it out. At least never married. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, as far as anyone considered, she was kind of the perfect woman in that sense. But the other two categories, it was yeah. impossible for her. She could be obedient to nobody but God, I guess, which is fine, I guess. And she probably played on that quite a bit. Um, but Silent, I mean, she was the leader of the country. She had to lead them into battles against Spain and mm-hmm. against persecution of religions and wars with Scotland and all sorts of things, right? So uh, there was uh, this kind of contradiction in the this, this ideal perfected woman as Silent Chaste and Obedient and the monarch who they all owed allegiance to being, you know, not. Which is interesting because she did famously... Um, reign as a king almost she mm-hmm. she she didn't want to give up any of that that power by marrying which is one of the reasons why she didn't marry um but she didn't i, I mean, it's not like cross-dressing but that comes into play in shakespeare's plays as well and i think that we can talk about that in relation to how he wanted to portray women stepping out of the traditional bounds to a queen who would interest who liked his plays yeah he wanted to portray this in a positive way. And the only way for a woman to get that power was to cross-dress and be a man, which is kind of what Elizabeth did. She did become yeah. a man, really, yeah. you know, unsexed almost to become a ruler in this great line of kings going back to 1066, right? So yeah. that that is that is interesting. Of course, in this play, that doesn't happen. But, um, but it still is interesting to see well, a different interpretation of how a woman might be able to behave. Yeah. And it's interesting because Katerina is actually, as far as we can tell, I mean, again, I mentioned that chastity meant more than just sex, but in terms of sex, there's no hint that Katerina had previous lovers. No. So in that way, she's very similar to Queen Elizabeth. Right. She's she's not silent or obedient, but, but she is chased. ostensibly chaste. Yeah. Um, and depending on how the play is read, she's very protective of that chastity. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Petruchio comes knocking, even she's not really receptive. Yeah. Depending on how it's how it's portrayed, um, so it's it's interesting that there is kind of a parallel there between the shrew, the, mm-hmm. this character of you know bad morals, and the queen. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if that was intended or if it would have even been noticed at no, the time. No, that is interesting, though. Um, but it, it is something there uh, that, that kind of complicates the reading of the whole play. Because mm-hmm. um, as the play goes on, and we'll talk about this a bit more, but uh, there is a whole lot of... Uh, the, 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 the ending of the play is always in question. Is Katerina beaten down and... and honest with her words at the end where she talks about you know how much you obeying yeah yeah and how much you owe your husband or your uh father you know the male figure in your life especially your husband um or is it kind of like oh yeah you know you owe your husband everything like wink wink yeah slash sarcasm you know tag there (laughs) so you know and there's there's lots of different ways of reading that ending um and so uh 
you know, does that mean that perhaps was that ambiguity there uh, from the initial point to say, hey, even if you're a woman who's not silent and obedient, say like the queen, it's okay because as long as you pay lip service to right obedience, uh, obedience to a man, it's it's kind of okay. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Lindsay? Did you? It's not, I mean, I'm hearing this for the first time. We hadn't really, we try not to discuss this too much before we get in front of the microphone, just in case we say something really brilliant and then have to replicate it. It's really awkward. So, so I'm hearing this, this idea for the first time that there might be some kind of relationship between um, Katarina and the queen. It's not something that immediately jumped to mind. I don't see Katarina as a particularly um, uh, admirable figure or somebody that you would want to draw comparisons to. I think, and, and I think, you know, in the context of the time, this would have been played for laughs, yes. really. Yeah. And so I don't know if that there was like an intention behind it to draw that parallel between Katarina and Queen Elizabeth. But having said that, we don't know what Shakespeare was thinking. This no. is all conjecture. Oh, totally. Uh, so I, you know, it, it could go either way. But I like the idea that maybe there is some kind of link. And I, I certainly um, would consider it you consider it okay yeah. i've reached my maximum point for you because if you're considering it that's a good job for me um the other the other thing about about the lack of um kind of social norms being upheld mm-hmm. you know we, we talked about this a little bit earlier too with um the fact that there was social mobility mm-hmm. almost for the first time and you had people of low birth being elevated to gentleman status status almost um or, or actually achieving that in the case of someone like Shakespeare and mm-hmm. his family, right? So this idea of social mobility really did cast the society into turmoil. And I think that's reflected a little bit in this as well, in that you have a woman who is, like we said, unmarriageable. Um, is that a word, unmarriageable? Sure. Unmarriable? Unmarriageable? Unmarriageable sounds... <laughs> Yeah. Is that an actual? Yeah. I don't okay. know. I don't know. I don't know. Sure. We're yeah, going to we'll go with it, though. We'll go with unmarriageable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's she's not someone who you would imagine would get married. And and certainly with the construct around this, 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 that sets up that comic subplot, it sets up the whole play. It's her father's decree that Katerina cannot, or Bianca can't get married unless Katerina is married. Um, that's a, a, it's almost like an artificial social social construct like there's nothing in the law that says you have to marry off your eldest daughter before you can marry off your younger daughters although in regency england and victorian england you have characters like in in uh um pride and prejudice like with all five bennett sisters out in society at once once? oh scandals right so i mean maybe maybe there is something to that but but i don't i don't think that was like a hard and fast law so here is baptista minola the the father um, making this decree and trying to set bounds around a woman who is bucking social norms. Yeah. And it almost feels like this is a commentary on how well that's going to go for him, yeah. how well that's going to go for <laughs> Bianca. And although I don't think, like I said, Bianca, or sorry, Katerina is not this virtuous figure you want to you want to emulate, Bianca isn't really either. And Baptista is not really either. That's like a good none point. of the characters are really good people that you would want to <laughs> have in your social circle. And neither is right? Petruchio at all. Exactly. Like, he's absolutely right? crazy. Uh, but that's an interesting point because I mean Bianca basically gets engaged in elopes uh, without her father's permission yeah. to uh, Lucentio, right? Uh, and that's that's an interesting date because she's 
not chaste. No. <laughs> you know, she is, she is the epitome. She's Bianca pure, um, but then she's not. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an interesting, uh, I hadn't considered that either until just mm-hmm. now. That's a good point. Um, and it, it is interesting because these are, um, again, kind of uh, the silent chaste obedient archetype is, or not archetype, I guess, uh, moral code yeah. is being imposed on a world where it doesn't, it's impossible to maintain that yeah. because there is so, that social mobility because women are, um, they're still property and they're still being married off and they have to be married and uh, so on and so forth. But there, there's a newfound emphasis on this in the culture. Yeah. Um, because if you were talking about like a medieval period, um, there wasn't this level of control because the women weren't interacting with men mm-hmm. as freely. Um, it was all very, you know, basic ec- economic need of needing to marry, mm-hmm. uh, to have kids, to support yourself on the farm. But these are all always usually kind of like urban environments that yeah. we're in. Uh, it was in Two Gentlemen of Verona. They were in Verona. Here yeah. it's uh, Padua and Pisa. And they're all from all over northern Italy, yeah. right? Uh, and they're coming together. And so there's there's more options for marriage. And once women have more options, you need to control them a little bit more right. uh, if you're in a patriarchal and, society. And even if, if you give women these choices, you know, there's still – so her father still tries to put these barriers in the way. But then the men who are interested in her find ways around them anyway. Yeah. Right? So – and that's how you get Lucentio pretending to be a, a, a scholar, a philosopher, yeah. to teach – Bianca, the whatever. Yeah. Um, She's pretty smart. <laughs> and Hortensio yeah. does the same thing. And, and they've all got their people in the room to try and woo her. Mm-hmm. They're getting around, completely getting around her father's decree anyway. So it's not just the women who are bucking the trends and or bucking the, the norms, um, the the mores. Yeah. But the men are doing it too. Yeah. Everybody is doing it too. Yeah. So it's, it's well, everyone except for the old man. Who, who kind of yeah does gives it, up but, yeah <laughs> well, and Hortensio gives up too but yeah. in the end really it, it's 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 interesting that it's young people showing absolutely no regard for <laughs> the the social structure of their elders yeah. really it's yeah. it's kind of a radical play in that respect I yeah. think if you look at it that way well or I mean if you most see of, it that way and most of Shakespeare's plays have an yes, element of that the exactly. youth, youthful love uh, triumphing over you know the the social condition that they're they're underneath and i th- i thought it was just interesting because it is very similar to the next big moment in english uh the next well the next female monarch mm. uh, queen victoria when she comes to power there's another whole concern about women's uh sexuality that, right. that kind of takes over uh the victorian era and it's also an area uh, uh, sorry an era of uh, increased urbanization as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, London explodes from whatever, a million or half a million people to whatever. M- big millions. metropolis, right? <laughs> yes. uh, and all these other little cities, Manchester, Liverpool, all grow and stuff as well. Yeah. Uh, Interesting during- that it's when women are on the throne that the greatest periods, and Elizabeth too, you yeah. see the great information age come about and, and she's presided over all of it. So yeah, that that I'm just throwing that in there. Yeah, no, it's, it is. It's interesting because it's it seems like this just it's a little bit of happenstance from history uh, combining with the who the monarch is at the time. Yeah. These issues come up uh, so strongly at the at these points. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. So we wanted to do a little bit of a, a, a deep dive into uh, one particular part of the of the play. It's my favorite part 
every time I read it and mm-hmm. when it's performed, it's usually uh, really great to watch. And it's usually very telling about how they're going to interpret the play as yes, well. Yes, exactly. Uh, it is the back and forth Petruchio and Katerina meeting for the first time. Yeah. Uh, and the text itself is, it's very witty. It's very back and forth. There's a lot of uh, wordplay. Uh, it's very Shakespeare. <laughs> like it is, it is the jokey Shakespeare that drives high school kids crazy. Cause like, why is this funny? But once you see it again, performed, uh, you can get a lot of that, that bickering sense. Uh, we know a lot about that. Uh, <laughs> it through uh the action and through the expressions and so forth um but it, it is really great to see how these characters will play out um and yeah like you mentioned Lindsay, you know how is this going to influence the rest of their relationship throughout the play like right. do they when they see each other do they have that moment of like oh they're actually pretty attractive and right. i'm kind of interested or is it like oh yeah this is the shrew i've got to tame and she's just like oh another dude come in here to probably court my sister or something like there's that there's all that interplay at the the very first sight and then all the way through you know talk of tails and tongues and <laughs> all that and stingers and everything there uh it's it's interesting to see are they playful about it are they vicious about it yeah um there's so much latitude there uh that it, it's it is really interesting yeah um so it We've seen this a couple of times performed, and I think the one that I remember um, most clearly was a local production um, that was set during the Klondike Gold Rush, uh, the the Free Will Shakespeare Festival, and um, and they had it kind of a cute reference to Klondike Kate. I remember that very clearly. (laughs) Um, Klondike Kate being kind of the mascot sort of for the the Klondike Days, our annual summer festival here in Edmonton. So. and that one, I thought, I, I do remember very clearly seeing the that interplay as being slightly more flirtatious than, mm-hmm. um, I, I've never seen one where there's, there's no, there's absolutely zero attraction between Petruchio and Katarina. Yeah. But when you read it on the page, yeah. there's just... And this is the problem with Shakespeare is that you can't really just read it. You have to see them performed. So it's one of the reasons why we also watched um, three different adaptations. Well, I watched three. You watched two adaptations of this play. And uh, the one that everybody talks about is the 1967 uh, Zeffirelli version with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And and then that one, I like the fact, Aiden, you brought this up, that – them seeing each other a little bit before or at least Katarina kind of like summing him up or or surveying him what's the word I'm looking for yeah yeah surveying words Uh, before they actually meet is really interesting and there's lots of scenes in that film of of Katarina looking through windows to see things and looking through glass and peering out and seeing just from her vantage point she's seeing a sliver of something but she's intrigued enough to kind of go with it and there is a very clear sense that what she is feeling is attraction yeah um have you ever seen a production or anything that you remember where where they where you get the sense that they hate each other they actually hate each other or or that at least Katarina hates Petruchio no, because I think we've seen most of the same versions. So no, I, I agree. Well, I'm just wondering if maybe you remember them differently. Than no, I do, no, or... no. I do. I remember especially the 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 Gold Rush one. Uh, I thought that was that one was really well done for the se- for building that sense of okay, these are two people who are feeling each other out. They're, yes, they're physically attracted, and then as the wordplay starts building throughout the scene, uh, they become 
intellectually attractive, yes. I would say to each other as yes. well. Um, yeah, but I think it is, it's definitely possible to read it. I mean, there is, at one point, she slaps him. Yes. Uh, which I think was omitted in that version that we saw, actually. Um, in the Zeffirelli one, there's, she's throwing things and, yeah. and like hitting him with stuff and sitting on him and stuff. Uh, but it's, it's almost a little too exaggerated to, right. to really, I mean, she's a very violent individual in the, in the film. Uh, but here it's, it's, it's a little more playful at the same time as being exaggerated. In the play itself? No, or? in the, in the Zeffirelli oh, version. Okay. Uh, whereas, yeah, in the play itself, it, you can read it as just like, she's really angry and trying to like get him, get rid of him. And he's the, he's the one who's kind of carrying the, the uh, comedy and carrying the, uh, I guess, uh, carrying the the conversation in the right. sense of not letting her dissuade him, uh, which is again also in the scene because at the very start well, of the scene yeah, he, he begins, says everything that she does I'm going to say the opposite. It's oh, amazing, you yeah, know, yeah. and and that's that's a ploy. It's gaslighting. It's it's pure and yeah. simple what it is, and and that's not a term that uh, Shakespeare is contemporaries would have used but that's exactly what it is and and that's what makes the christopher sly induction scene so interesting as well and we haven't talked about that yet but um the fact that he just it's 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 what he uses to keep her talking because she's so incredulous like you know i'm not fair kate i'm not yeah you know and and that can be played as well as as um if you've been told your whole life or for the the host of your um, your adult life that you're not worthy of marriage that no one wants to marry you and that your sister is this beautiful thing and you're ruining her life the minute somebody comes by and says actually you're fair Kate you're lovely and you're beautiful and everything like that um, you probably would say what are you talking about are you crazy and so um, there can be an element of and that's what makes Petruchio an interesting character because he starts off almost in a, a place of, um, you know, his father's died, so he's grieving. And it's unclear if in in the film version, the Zeffirelli version, it seems like he's not as wealthy as maybe, well, he's certainly not as wealthy as the Minolas. No. But um, he's interested in her dowry and he wants to know how much money she brings to the table. It's almost like this is for money. He's only doing it for money or doing it to secure some kind of future for himself now that his father's gone. So if you play it that way, then it is just a craven transaction. But if you, if you play it and it's possible to play it from the words, if you play it as Katarina being told she's lovely and Petruchio maybe, um, feeding into that and maybe that's how love blossoms between the two of them it is possible to read it that way and I think that's what I like about this play yeah um even though it does go to some very very dark places when he yeah. begins this this process of quote-unquote taming her so let's talk about that yeah. uh, let's talk about the taming process and how you think that kind of works out so he does he does a lot of things yeah he, he gaslights her by you know basically time oh well i mean the the most notable example is at on the way back to padua for the other wedding they come across vincentio and they're like oh it's a vincentio woman. is lucentio's father, father very yes. confusingly yeah <laughs> and uh you know uh, petruchio has her call him a fair maiden and and she goes along with it because with she's it. been through this process of trying to sleep resist deprivation yeah. and she's been denied food and clothing and She's cold. She's like all of these things are are being forced upon her 
in a really it's it's incredibly difficult to read and it's really hard to watch. I had a lot of trouble. Yeah, you were Aiden, very upset you while we were watching Zephyrelia. Because uh, I'd never seen it before and, and it was really cruel because the camera lingers on Elizabeth Taylor's face and she's so beautiful and, and she's so sad. She's so bewildered by this process. Yeah. Like she's... She, and it really it really hits home that this is a woman who has been under the yoke of her father and then the first man that comes along that shows an interest to her treats her like shit. Yeah. And it's just, it's so but, awful. But I think the important thing is treating her like shit but pretending to treat her well. Um, because I think that was a, an interesting distinction. Uh, again, we re- we've been reading the Folgers uh, Shakespeare versions of the, of the plays and the essay at the back uh, talked a little bit about... Mm-hmm. Um, what the the antecedents to this play are uh, in the Italian and Latin traditions, right. especially. Um, and in those ones, usually when they were taming a woman, they would just beat her. Like yeah. it would be physical torture. Yeah. Um, and so this is like a slight improvement, I guess. Yeah. In- it's like, here, I'll put a, I'll put a roof over your head and, oh, here's food. Oh, but it's, it's cooked too much. So we're not going to eat. Yeah. Tonight. It's not good enough. It's for not us. good enough yeah, for you. Yeah. So it's, 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 cruel to be kind <laughs> which is exactly what he it, it, yeah. i will kill her with kindness yeah. and that's what makes it so hard is that they're really it, it's and and if you bring that up and people who have been in abusive relationships have done this they're gaslit again like oh i'm doing this for your benefit and yeah. and you really can't see like there's a way to see it through the abuser's eyes and to say oh well maybe that food really wasn't good yeah. or really this bed isn't good enough. Yeah, the yeah. clothes the, aren't clean yeah, clothes enough aren't, or, yeah, yeah. or whatever. So it's it's what makes it so insidious and hard to watch. But I I mean, and I think in the play, it's it's less clear because she she throws it as, like a switch. And I think yeah. that's where a lot of people read the, the ending as um, a little less satirical. depressing. Yes, yeah. a little more satirical because... Is she you especially it's in that scene with Vicentio where she's like, Oh, am I gonna am I gonna fall through yeah. with calling him a maid? No. And then he's like, Well, then we'll leave. And she's like, Okay, I'll do it. Yeah. And it's it's literally that fast. She's like, Okay, I know what you want. I'll just do it for that sake. Yeah. Not because I actually believe that Vincentio is a woman. Right. But because I know you're going to be a little bitch about it until I well, do it. Well, and right? the same with calling the sun the moon or the yeah. moon the sun or whatever. Yeah. It's it's not because she believes it. She's not. And I've, I, I remember talking about this in our Shakespeare class that we took in university yeah. where um, I think our professor mentioned that there's at this point she's tired. Katerina is tired and sleep. she's sleep deprived. She's hungry. So psychologically, she's worn out. So she's just going to go along with whatever he says. In the Taylor Burton enactment mm-hmm. of this scene, she's much more calculating about yes, it. And so exactly. I think that's a big difference because from reading the play, you don't get that sense. But you can, again, it comes down to the interpretation that the director or the filmmaker or whoever puts into the the play itself when they're producing it because it is so easy to read it either way. Yeah. You know? Well, I I don't know about reading it. Again, when you, when you just read the text in a lot of cases, uh, it comes across as her being very uh, just beaten down. And like you could – hold on a second. I'm just going to find the text that I'm, I want to talk about here. So this is the whole moon sun uh, passage, mm-hmm. and uh, they're back and forth about 
whether it's the moon or the sun. And this is on right before they meet Vincentio. Um, and uh, it's Hortensio who actually jumps in uh, and says, say as he says, or we shall never go. Yeah, right. And uh, then she says, okay, forward I pray, since we have come so far, and be it moon or sun or what you please, and if you please to call it a rush candle, henceforth I vow it shall be so for me. Mm. That, to me, that very much sounds like a... Uh, a woman who's just given up. Yeah. Uh, and she's explicitly saying, because we've gone so far, I just don't want to go back. I, I am yeah. I am beaten down by this. Um, and I realize I'm just kind of contradicting myself because earlier I'd mentioned that she just on a dime switches it here. And she does switch it, but... Once Vincentio comes in and she does. Yes. There's no sense of that in the text itself. But I see what you're saying. Because yeah. when you read it out, it does sound like she's just browbeaten to yeah. the point of, I don't care anymore. Yeah. Like call it whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I guess I guess that can be played either way. Still, that's my point. Is that it's it's really still up to the production. Yeah, and I I honestly can't remember in the Zeffirelli if they even had the moon and stars or if it was just no, they did. Okay, I'm okay. pretty sure they did. Yeah, okay. I, I thought so too, but I, I couldn't remember. But I wasn't really watching at that point. So I was really mad. <laughs> you were really mad. <laughs> but uh, you know, there are there are productions where it could just be start with Vincentio like you could cut that sure, moon yeah. and sun stuff and then you lose a bit of that context as well so mm-hmm. uh yeah it's 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 an interesting switch and this is really kind of the important scene where it leads into the the climax of the the play something that I read when we were doing a little bit of research for this was that um and and it, it's been glossed over in our conversation so far but the falconry imagery and the falconry mm-hmm. language that comes up and so falconry is not something that is very common anymore but at the time it would have been understood as as um a given like this is something this is a sport that you know a man of Petruchio's caliber would engage in and he yeah. does talk about Katerina um I mean he he comments that she's like a Kate, like a cat, right? And yeah. he, he's um, making those references, but he talks about the taming process as being like breaking a falcon or taming a falcon. Yeah. And in that case, when you tame a falcon, it it's something like you do sleep deprive your falcon and you do um, deny it food. Yeah. But you don't sleep either. Yeah. Right? And that is something that Petruchio does in this yeah. play. Yeah. That he, you know, when he says, oh, well, we won't eat tonight. We'll, um, I forget the language that he uses, but, you know, he's not going to eat either. And if she's not going to sleep because I'm going to keep her up all night, you know, if, if she starts to nod off, I'll just keep ranting and railing so she wakes up again. Right? And so um, it, it is it is a punishment for him. I don't see it as a punishment for him. Well, because he's cause choosing he's to do choosing it. to do it yeah, exactly, yeah, and, and Kate Katerina has no um, no agency or, or anything over it. Even the fact that he calls her Kate, I, I've been trying really hard to call her Katerina because yeah. Kate is not her name, and he calls her that in a, in an act of defiance. Yeah. That well, he's, she, yeah, he says my name's Katerina. He says no, you're Kate. Yeah, and, like, and it's the first. Exactly. Thing he says to her, and if you yeah. rename somebody, I mean that's that's a power move, right? Yeah. Like you're taking away what they are, yeah. their name. So I mean that kind of pisses me off. So <laughs> I I'm sorry that I called her Kate a minute ago. But um, anyway, so so that that idea I think gets lost on modern crowds, mm-hmm. modern readers, because we don't have that falconry. Yeah. Um, metaphor kind of, in mind yeah yeah or yeah. the references in yeah. our society any longer yeah. so it's important to note that this is and it may have been interpreted at the time as being um i mean it's still kind of shitty because she's not an animal 
Mm-hmm. But in the great chain of being, she's not far above an yeah. animal. So <laughs> yeah. again, the the contemporary audience would have understood that, yeah. and would have seen that as being completely yes. normal or or understandable. But we haven't even talked about how Petruchio isn't exactly a catch himself. Yes, and that was that was a really interesting point because I had never considered this point of view in the many times I've uh, viewed the or seen the play before or the time I read it earlier. Uh, in university but i mean there's a way to look at this as petruchio actually being the shrew who gets tamed at the end of the play yeah i suppose you could right Um, like because yeah like like you said he's not he's not uh he doesn't behave as society would dictate either Mm -hmm. uh we see that all throughout the play uh especially in the zeffirelli version i mean when he shows up the first time even before he's case even been mentioned oh man he's like yelling he's drunk he's beating people up in the streets he's just i mean he's richard burton so he's gonna get away with anything um so you know from the minute you see him that this is someone who who clearly doesn't have a clue about how to behave in a normal society and the people around him call him out on it exactly before he's even met katarina yeah and uh it's it's interesting because at the end ostensibly he at least especially in the zeffirelli version Mm -hmm. again uh he's cleaned up and a big part of that is uh from katarina Mm -hmm. coming to his home she sets his house into order yes Uh, she gets gets all the servants working properly uh creates a sense of order and none of that is in the text so that is that was entirely a the directorial choice um and it, it's an interesting one because it really does uh, further that idea that Petruchio is also the one uh, who's being reformed. Yeah, he uh, needed a wife badly. He, exactly. He needed the wife. And this is something, I mean, I, the Zeffirelli version coming out in 1967, kind of at the cusp of the uh, feminist, the second wave feminist movement, um, it's important to note that the context for which yeah. or in which that film has been created or was created because this would not have gone over very well for modern audiences at the time, contemporary audiences, if he had been, you know, browbeating Katerina into submission. When you've got, you know, fights and marches for women's rights all over the world. So, I mean, it's in other versions and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the Klondike Kate one that we watched. Um, the Petruchio character comes in as almost like this bold, cocksure, you know, paragon almost. Yes, yeah. And there's no reason that you could read him otherwise, aside from a few lines in the play where other people refer to him as mad. But it's easy to read that all as an act. Exactly. And because he explicitly says exactly. as much. She's like, I will basically be crazy around her to, yeah. to make her... We set her off off kilter, basically. Exactly. So, so again, depending on the interpretation, you can play it as just an act. He shows up, like Malvolio in uh, yeah. um, Twelfth, Twelfth Night, Night yeah. cross gartered. You know, yeah. he he shows up to the wedding wearing this madcap outfit, outfit, but yeah. he looks ridiculous. Um, you know, beats up the priest and swears <laughs> in church and throws some glasses around and yeah. food and everything. Like, but. In the Zeffirelli version, which is really interesting, and that, again, hadn't thought of this until I watched it, he's not he's not a catch. He's no. It's possible to see this as he just doesn't know how to behave. Yeah. And so Katerina coming in and, and making the best of this situation, like she does, by cleaning up his home, yeah. um, 
it does kind of underscore or reinforce this notion that that he needed her as much as she quote unquote needed him yeah and i think she did need him in the end just because being in the situation she was in was not good for her either Mm -hmm. And Bianca's not. I mean, we haven't even touched on this comic subplot. Did we want to talk uh, about yeah, that we at might, all? Or? Well, we should because because Bianca is... really bothers me, and so I think <laughs> I think even if we spent five minutes talking about this, sure. Well, why don't you start with that? Why does Bianca bother you? Because she is not. I, I mean, she's she's the worst kind of woman. She's the kind of woman. <laughs> wow. No, I'm serious, and I, and I say that as someone who is. I am an ardent feminist. <laughs> But I see women who do this and I say, oh, you're setting yourself back. (laughs) You know, if you just, you know, you do your hair nice and you bat your eyelashes and you get what you want. I mean, I guess it's a kind of agency, but you're also playing right into the the patriarchal standards of the time. And in the end, she is she is roundly um, chastised by her sister for behaving in such a way, you know, and yeah i don't i don't want to say rightly so but she is a bitch like she is <laughs> wow. right she is that's interesting you didn't think so no especially... so you think bianca is this perfect woman well or i think what? yeah i think she's a, a another terrible archetype of the perfect woman uh of the time period not my particular flavor but sure uh and i yeah i that's interesting because <laughs> That is not how I think most uh, productions would portray her. Even in Zeffirelli, where Katharina is kind of the hero of the of the play at the end of the day. Um, her and uh, Petruchio's back and forth is the it is the whole is the whole film. Like mm-hmm. the the rest of the subplot is basically buried. Uh, and there, Bianca is just kind of a blonde, kind of ditzy woman. Yeah. Um, but she's not necessarily mean or or harsh. Even I mean. Uh, when at one point Baptiste has to break them up because they're uh, they're fighting mm-hmm. Katharina and and uh, Bianca and he says like she's never done anything wrong to you but I don't see that <laughs> as being as being true because I huh. okay and here's okay. the thing I've been around a lot of mean girls okay I've been around a lot of mean girls okay, okay. I teach junior high <laughs> yeah you they're know. everywhere and they know how to manipulate people she's got her father wrapped around her finger so of course Baptiste is not gonna say Bianca, stop being mean to your sister. I see this as being, I Katarina is put down and downtrodden the entire play. The entire play. Yes. And, and the only person she has any power over is her younger sister. That's true. It's not right for her to be mean to her sister. But I don't think that, that Bianca hmm. uh, does anything to encourage Katarina to be nice either. She's... Probably, I mean, in any production you see, she's like, why are you doing this to me? Like, you are the cause of all of my, like, of course, Katarina is going to be like, you know, fuck you. Like, (laughs) you know, this, this, maybe, maybe if you weren't so, if we could band together, you know, power to the, you know, girl power, (laughs) sisterhood, hashtag. I don't know. I just, I just have a problem with with Bianca. I just, I just see her as being very manipulative. Because she's beautiful, I, and that's part I, of the sure, problem. Sure, sure. And I, I I, agree. Most productions I've seen, even the other one that we'll talk about that is not Shakespeare, uh, you know, features that quite prominently, that Bianca is very perfect mm-hmm. in a societal sense, but very self-centered. And that um, comes out after she gets married, right? It's yes. It's like she's perfect, perfect, perfect. She's this wonderful person. And then they get married, and she's like, I'm not going to come out when my husband calls. And I've seen that, too. I yeah. have friends who, who are like, they... they go all out for their wedding and they and then they 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 go home and then they browbeat their husbands 
And it's like, no, this is a union of two people who should. And, and in that respect, Petruchio and Katerina are the ultimate couple. Yeah. And you can read the ending that way. Sure. You know, they're one person, they're one unit, and they trust each other. You know, yeah. Katerina trusts Petruchio not to step on her hand if he puts, she puts her hand under his, his foot. foot. Yeah. And he won't do that because they, there's a mutual trust and respect there. And Bianca doesn't have that with Lucentio at all. And never will. Or it's it's at least not to the point that Katerina and Petruchio have. Because yeah, because there's no grown... mutual respect there. Yes, yeah. there's it's, none. It's, it's very much just like, well, you wanted me so badly that yeah. you were willing to do all this. Yeah. So therefore, I am i don't have to really listen exactly. to you. Like, there's a power imbalance at the start of the relationship. Yeah. But that makes it sound like Petruchio and Katerina are the emblem of I know. a healthy start to a relationship, and which it is not. And that's what confuses the hell out of me. <laughs> because I don't think they are, but yet they are. And that fucks me up man like i don't know what to say anymore that is interesting because well i mean in some ways like again we're going back to that to that one section of the text when they first meet they are so evenly matched they uh, are and that and that is in the text that is i mean their word their word play back and it's forth like about line by line line for line amazing they just yes. fire back like she is she is one of Shakespeare's wittiest female characters. Yeah. And and it leaps off the page. Yeah. And it's interesting that her longest speech comes at the end of the play after she has gained a modicum of control over her life, which she never had when she was living under her father's roof. Mm-hmm. She never had before she was married. And all of a sudden, she's the, the lady of Petruchio's house, and she is able to speak this hugely long speech. It's one of the longest speeches in the play. Yeah, I mean... So does, I, does, does she get her voice as a, as a result of this? Yeah, but it's a result of giving in. And that's... Right, so... Yeah. yeah. It's, it's messy. It's messy. What's mine is yours. And what is yours is mine. What are some of the other productions that that? Uh... Well, you watched another one uh, that I did not. It yeah. was the early. It was. It was. Was it the first talkie version of Shakespeare? It was. It oh, okay. was the first filmed version of Shakespeare, oh. as far as I know. So the first time Shakespeare was put on film, and it's a Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford um, production from nineteen twenty nine, nineteen thirty, oh, okay. thirty one, something like that. Um, so early talkie. Um, an hour long. It, it's very oh, it's condensed. And yeah, okay. and and it's 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 fun to watch. That I like watching them anyway because those old films are just full of. I don't know. I just love those silent <laughs> films and the early talkies, black and white stuff. The acting is so over the top. Yeah, and, and everything like that. Even though they're they're talking, um, but again, it's interesting because here you have you know Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford at the end of their marriage. Um, when they were fighting and not getting along very well and still, you know, putting in this passionate performance. In fact, there were a lot of people who thought that maybe Fairbanks was taking out a lot of his anger on Pickford in, in the, the role, role of Petruchio beating yeah. up Katarina. Um, but it they they they're electric on screen, yeah. really. And they always were, but but they are especially here. And um what I liked about that ending is that there's this literal, you know, Pickford looking at, you know, winking at the end of her speech, you know, and so So it's very, very blatant that she's not, she doesn't actually believe what she says about, you know, that you owing something to your husband. And so while she's, you know, screaming at her, well, not screaming, (laughs) but she's, she's chastising her sister and the old widow. Um, so, so that was interesting in that it's 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 good if, good to watch it from a historical perspective as the first Shakespeare film, 
Um, but also for this very blatant satirical take on, on the, the, ending. the key ending. And interesting also that it comes, you know, very shortly after women, white women, were given the, the right to vote and, mm. and first wave feminism had really kind of taken off with um, things like the, the temperance movement and stuff, really exerting control and, and everything in the, in the United States for sure. So it's, it's of its time as well. Yeah. And uh, and then also for this this that satirical ending, I yeah. think is really because it's well, so obvious, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. The uh, d- we talked a lot about the Zeffirelli one, and it is it is a fairly good version. Uh, I I think the most one of the more interesting things is how much of the uh, comic subplot about Lucentio yeah. and. Uh, Hortensio, Hortensio and, and wooing Bianca. Bianca and all that uh, is really pared down. It's mm-hmm. it's almost nothing. There's, I mean, the ending, which is in the play, is kind of a big deal about you know Lucentio and Bianca have gone off and gotten married, and there's a fake Vincentio, and yeah, you know to pose is... and all this. It gets condensed down into one scene basically, yeah. and it it's over really fast. And the apology to get to allow him to be married to her is yeah because he never sought permission from his father yeah. to marry bianca well either. and bianca's father was misled as to who right, Vincentio right. actually was exactly. so they really need to beg forgiveness of both fathers and it happens in like two seconds flat yeah. like it's it's really rushed and and again yeah the the main focus of the the film is on petruchio and and katarina um so i thought that was it's really interesting that way because it, it gives it room to do all those those in between the text uh, items like the wedding yeah. and uh, her cleaning up the house. And, uh, you know, there's a, a very long sequence of him leading her back right. after they've left Padua to Which, his home. Yeah. And there's like, it, it feels like almost like a musical number because it's so well choreographed. Right. They come home and there's all these servants running about yeah. and creating chaos and stuff. It's it's quite yeah, colorful. None of it is in the play. Yeah. And, and a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the acting is done silently with, yeah. like we said... Elizabeth Taylor looking through windows yeah. or or glances being exchanged or running around and and so the story is told in a very different way than it is when you watch the play or yeah or, or in read any it of the for other sure definitely productions. it's, it's yeah. very very different and and that I mean that again goes to the the core of how adaptable Shakespeare is but it's interesting that you know with with Taylor and Burton I mean they were married they mm-hmm. were still also, happily married at this point oh was it okay I yeah. thought they divorced soon after uh no they were a couple years seven years or something okay. after that I think I don't know for the first time then they got remarried and <laughs> yeah. right but um. But, you know, for them to have this starring role in, in a film playing lovers, and it was like their comeback film, I read, that, yeah. that and it did really, really well. Yeah. Like, it was a hit. It was mm-hmm. a huge hit at the box office. So, um, and it, it really reaffirmed their combined star power on screen. Um, so, I mean, that's just interesting. It does seem like like a lot of times when you see these films, or this play put on it's mm-hmm. it's done by a husband and wife yeah, team yeah uh which must be weird to to see or to perform what, what does imagine. it say about marriage that you know the one where they have to fight basically the entire yeah play is the we can't do this believably unless we get an actual married couple on stage <laughs> who have gone through this you know it is funny and and just to speak to the ending of that one um it is played fairly straight yeah uh it seems like she really is Yes. believing this but then at the end there's this this interesting thing where she's her last line has been spoken the wedding cheers yes and then 
uh, he takes off. She takes off, and he turns and looks for her, and all the other women are kind of obscuring his path yes. to her. Yes. And I thought that was that's an interesting take. Yes, it uh, is because it it's not it's not the wink, it's not the wink at the camera, but no. it is it's questioning it. It's yeah. it's you know how much of that did she actually believe? Well, and and I mean the other thing about that one is that there are a lot of like we said scenes where where you get Elizabeth Taylor alone doing something, and and she's often well. There's one very clear scene where her father agrees that they'll, they'll be married, and she's been locked in a room by Petruchio, and she looks out the window and she sees this conversation happening and he leaves and she kind of sinks down to the table she's pushed up to the door to look out the window and she smiles to herself like she's secretly pleased and you don't know if that's because she likes Petruchio or if it's because she just wants to be married just because every woman wants to be married but you got the sense it was was more she liked him yeah because this this comes right after they've had this repartee back and forth so which even in that scene there was there was a a portion where they were separated and she has this big smile on her face Exactly, and, right? You know, so, it's, it, she really seemed to engage with him on yeah. that, that verbal level, and it, it really helped cement the relationship, Yeah, um, which, yeah, adds to the to the sense of, well, how much of this is, is, is her own doing? You know, like yeah. how much of this speech that's sensibly about obeying her husband is mm-hmm. her own machinations to get him into line? Right, exactly, um, and, exactly. So yeah. is, that, is that at the end of the Zeffirelli version especially – who has been tamed, really. Yeah. That's what made me question it, too. Um, so it's 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 all kinds of fascinating if you look at it this way. The, the third version of this film, <laughs> quote-unquote version, version, it's a really loose adaptation from 1999, 10 Things I Hate About You, um, starring Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles as the, uh, the titular characters. characters. Well, yeah. the, the shrew of, uh, yeah, the, of the, time the original period, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the Petruchio the, character. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's very 90s. That's all Aiden could say. Seriously, <laughs> I swear to God, we were watching this movie. He's like, this is so 90s. And he's like pulling out his hair. And I said it like at least 20 dozen he's times. He's online like, looking for Crystal Pepsi afterwards. <laughs> digs out his old SNES. He's just like on full 90s now, oh, guys. It's it ridiculous. It was so fun. It was, it's fun to watch though, but just because we grew up in that era. And yeah. I've seen so many of those. I mean, it was American Pie. Oh, she's, the, all she's all that. I mean, it's, it's all of those films. All the, of those. The soundtrack and there's ska. Like, yeah. I haven't oh, heard God, a so ska, ska soundtrack in, well, since I watched Clueless, which was also from the 90s. So, yeah. I mean, it's very, it's a very interesting adaptation, but it's very, very, very loose adaptation. Like, it's it really, it takes the, the basic... Um, story plot. that you described yes. of the sister who can't date, and it's dating instead of marriage. Yes. But the one sister who can't date until her older sister starts... Exactly. And they're in high school and there's a a bit of a subplot with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and um, uh, Larissa Olenek is the Bianca Bianca character. character, Um, And he's her French tutor, but he doesn't actually know French. And so there's that going on but she is i think that also plays into this idea that i have that bianca is not nice because yeah this bianca version, character yeah. is dumb and like she's that stereotypical 90s dumb blonde but right? she, she has a redeeming moment at the end which bianca doesn't have which is that she's initially attracted to the dumb equally dumb equally mean uh 90s archetype boyfriend yeah. of yeah. the he's an underwear model or yeah or something uh and but you know she she goes out with him on a date and then she realizes how vain and useless he is yeah. and that's when she decides to go back to uh, yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Yeah, she dumps Andrew Keegan. Yeah, for to go Joseph yeah. Gordon-Levitt, yeah. which '90s me would, would not have, have like, understood. But but now you're like, oh my god, yeah, one of them still has a well, but except that Joseph Gordon-Levitt has spent the whole play or the whole movie lying to her. Well, but, yeah, but oh. it's it's. 
But we should talk about that. I think I think it's interesting to say that the the play is steeped in a kind of '90s feminism, and yeah. Julia Stiles' character is an advocate of this girl power. In fact, Bikini Kills references yeah. a few other feminist bands of the age. Um, but the movie itself is not very feminist. I mean, no. like uh, the stuff that Heath Ledger the the pickup lines because in this one he's bribed to take her out on a date. Yeah. Uh, by uh, what's the actor's name that you just Joseph mentioned? Joseph Gordon-Levitt no, or the, Andrew Keegan. They both basically wind yeah. up telling him to do this uh, and then he falls in love with her, of course. Um, but the the initial pickup lines he uses on her are like terrible, terrible things like, oh, but you thought about me naked, right? Like yeah. just stuff like that that's like, it's, just cr- it's very cringeworthy now. But in the 90s, I'm sure it was like, oh yeah, well, Heath Ledger's gorgeous. Of course you're going to picture <laughs> Well, and, and, and then there's this all, like, I mean, we've evolved a little bit since 1999. It's 20 years ago, but um, the idea that that the Kate character, Julia Stiles' character, um, had had a sexual relationship and it hadn't gone well. And there's, you know, questions of consent and, and stuff that are brought up that not explicitly, but they just leave this uncomfortable yes. taste. Feeling so it's behind. it's a weird play to want to adapt in this way is how I felt. I, I didn't really feel like usually when you see an adaptation, like Clueless is a good example because it's it's a, yeah. an adaptation of Emma. Yeah. And it's done cleverly. I mean, Amy Heckerling, you can't get mad at Amy Heckerling for anything. But she <laughs> did it in such a way that, that you – everything has um, – Everything from the original has a modern day equivalent. Parallel, yeah, exactly. A parallel. Yeah, yeah. And this, there wasn't enough, you're, and, and, it, and it was there to make kind of a comment about um, high school social structures and, and stuff yeah. that, that 10 Things I Hate About You just felt like, oh, we're going to do Shakespeare, but in Seattle. Yeah. And take advantage of grunge. And, yeah. and that's, that's it. It didn't really feel like it was smart about it. It, it started off trying to be really smart like the it has like the the nerd character uh showing off all the different clicks of stuff mm-hmm. which is a very 90s again, oh huge I, I have to say like that whole idea of like these are the posers these yeah, are the goths these, these are, are the, the nerds and yeah, yeah. like it's as very, they walk through the campus you know yeah, the quad or whatever of padua high school yeah right. uh so no no it was verona it, high school no it was padua was it padua i'm sure it was padua yeah Maybe it was padua, it was padua. High. yeah yeah <laughs> anyways i mean there was all that but it so yeah, it's it's very steeped in the moment. I mean, in that way, it is a great time capsule. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of of the feminism, it it talks about it does not match with the feminism that's portrayed. Yeah, and and that's that's kind of the the tough thing to watch. It's more of like if you're talking about girl power, it's a little more. Uh, Spice Girls girl power Maybe, rather than like, Bikini Kill. Like, yeah. That's kind of Even the, though Julia Stiles' character, like, her feminism extends only so far as it looks cool. You know what I mean? Like, she dresses bit. unconventionally. She wears clothes that would have marked her off as either a, a 90s feminist or a 90s lesbian, right? And that <laughs> yeah. that is, I mean, it's very hard to watch it seriously just because it is so 90s and, and it's hard to dis- divorce yourself from that. But yeah, like the things that she espouses, you know, sitting there reading Sylvia Plath, that's her, yeah, her that's, moment oh of death, oh, right? She's so deep. Or or knowing where to find <laughs> Betty Friedan's The Feminist Mystique in the bookstore, right? Yeah, it's that's all, it's all the, second wave feminism exactly. stuff that they're actually referencing but it's, when it's, you're in the third wave. Like it's Yeah, it's, and it, it's it felt it felt very dated already for being I mean there were there were ways to be a feminist 
And if it had been a true, if they were trying, and I don't think they were, if they had been trying to make a statement about third wave feminism or something, yeah, they they would have had more um, something between the Heath Ledger character and Julia Stiles. Well, and, 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 the and, and, right? and that's the really hard part is that you know the climax of this one is that she finds out he was bribing being bribed bribed, yeah yeah, to do this um she gets mad at him of course and storms off and the very next day she has a poem about how much she misses him yeah and 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 that's like that's the whole resolution is just the fact that she basically gave in she was tamed by this guy who i mean he's much nicer than petruchio oh yeah and he doesn't of course he doesn't deny her food or (laughs) or anything like that. that he's just a little bit i think the thing that like his version of taming her is that he pretends he doesn't like her and that's yeah. supposed to be what what girls want. Like a dude and, who ignores you is the guy that you want to go for. Or yeah, something. yeah. It, it's a very strange process in the yeah. film because he starts off like he's the one who approaches her, but yeah. then he's like, oh, but you know, I'm not really that interested. But then he is super interested. So yeah. then he can make that shift from someone who's uninterested to interested. In, you know, he takes care of her and like helps her out when she's been drinking too much. And, right. You know, and very and nice. listens to her that she wants to start a band and buys her a guitar with the money that he was, was bribed with, you know, yeah. uh, and, and, and she ends up with a Fender Stratocaster in her yeah. car. Yeah. And, and that's how they make up at the end. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's confusing. It doesn't, and maybe that's not the point. We're reading too much into it. It's a 90s teen flick. So let's not, let's not try but, and make but, it the Bible, but. No, but it is interesting that these are the movies that we grew up watching and these yeah. were the kind of messages that were very muddled at the time. You know, it was mm-hmm. very, it was still a very male centric view of how to oh, yeah. fix a relationship. Yeah. You buy her a guitar and apologize after she's read you a poem in class. And it yeah. is very strange, right? But it, it is still a very, it, it does not dive into Julia Stiles' head nearly nope. enough no. for uh, – her name is Katerina in, the, in yeah. the movie as well, by the way. Uh, so it doesn't jump into Katerina's head nearly enough for us to feel like she is actually uh, the central character, no. even though she is the central character of the yeah. play – of the movie, sorry, uh, and the play. Uh, in the movie – you don't get much of that except for the surface level mm-hmm. feminism stuff that mm-hmm. they talk about. Yeah. And, and, and a little bit of, uh, the, the, the father character is an obstetrician gynecologist who is so worried about his daughters becoming Chastity pregnant stuff, yeah. that he makes them wear a fake pregnant belly to dissuade them from having sex and, and won't let his daughter go to Sarah Lawrence college, even though she applies and he won't, he won't allow her to go. Um, because he doesn't want her to be that far away from him. And it's a very controlling, I mean, it, it, it updates the Baptista Manola character for a modern audience, but the, but it, it, it inherits the chastity yeah. virtue from Shakespeare and a there's little too on the nose, like very much so yeah. uh, with the, uh, the fears of the nineties and teen pregnancy yeah, and all that stuff, one, yeah. teen drinking, teen drugs, all of that plays a very central role, but but again, if it's trying to make a feminist statement, it fails in that regard because they don't really explain. I mean, the mother ran off, I think. Yeah, and there's yeah. not really any reason for the father to be this overbearing except that he there's this extended metaphor he gives about um, being, you know, how Katerina has benched him. They, they're, yeah, there's a baseball, baseball metaphor, metaphor and, and he wants to be on the team, but she's benched him for years because maybe because you're an overbearing <laughs> 
twat. Like, I don't know. I just have a, I have a hard yeah. time with this movie. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not a great movie. No. So, I mean, again, we, yeah, we are reading a, in a little bit, but I, I just thought it was interesting. That Especially as a Shakespeare um, adaptation that of I've, which I've there seen. there were so many. And there really were. There was that other one, uh, She's the Man, with mm-hmm. Amanda Bynes, where, uh, yeah. which is a, an adaptation of Twelfth Night. And, um... Yeah, like the Romeo and Juliet, Boslerman's yeah. Romeo and Juliet is kind of the standard, There's and I've o, the, which was exactly, also Julia Stiles. Yes, that's right. So I mean, it was a time for these adaptations to come up, and you think there are really good ones out there, and then there are ones like this that I, I it's baffling to me. And, and I've heard from people who show this when they teach the Taming of the Shrew. They show this to their high school classes yeah. or junior high school classes when they yeah, learn it's it, and, not and I don't see unless you're going to talk about all the ways that it's different and do some kind of comparison study you would need like we watched it shortly after we watched the zeffirelli and Mm -hmm. drawing the contrast there was very easy and i think that would work well maybe it would maybe it would but on its own it's it's far too loose to talk about what shakespeare brought to it i mean there's like going back to the one section that we really like about the back and forth that doesn't even exist in this movie at all like they they kind of meet and he doesn't have the verbal skills that she exposes at all so they're not even really a match in that sense which is the best part frankly of the text itself and most productions is the fact that they are equally matched so it takes everything uh that that attracts petruchio and katarina potentially Mm -hmm. in the play and reduces it to Kind of Heath Ledger is beautiful, and Julia Stiles is beautiful, so of course they're going to be together. Yeah. and that and they're both they're both out outside. They're both outcasts. Yes, her I because suppose. of her her feminism, and, and him, him because, because he's, he's mysterious yeah. and may have been in jail or something. Yeah, it, and has an Australian accent, yeah. <laughs> which is never really addressed. I mean, he he was born there. He says, no, the, I don't know. No. But either way, it's it's just it's. It's just not, it's an enjoyable film. Maybe if you don't know that it's based on Shakespeare, you wouldn't know from the ending, aside from the weird Shakespeare references that are brought up by the nerd character. Um, Oh, and she has to rewrite one of the sonnets. Oh, yes, that's right. Which is the 10 things poem that that is. Either way, it's just, it's, it's a film that happens and we watched it and, uh, and it's not the greatest, but it exists. And Allison Janney's in it as an erotica writing <laughs> principal or something. No, she's like a that. guidance counselor. Guidance counselor, yes. Which is like my dream. That uh, would be not to be a guidance counselor, but to write erotic okay. fan fiction at my desk and not be. Please don't do in that. You are a teacher, Lindsay. No, I know that. It's just like that's so unbelievable as a as a plot point. Uh, yeah. As was Allison Janney's hairstyle in the film. Yeah. Just going to throw that out there. Have it be coward? Uh, can we briefly talk about the Christopher Sly induction scene in the frame narrative? Yes, that yes. We, we haven't did, talked we about yet. We skipped over that a bit, yeah. Because it's easy, it's easy to because none of the filmed versions that I've ever seen, and I've only seen three, but none of them, <laughs> and even often no, the, the productions. The, yeah, the one we saw did not have They it. skip yeah. it entirely. Yeah. And it changes the way you read the play. In fact, I had forgotten that the induction scene even existed, existed right? until yeah. I read an essay that talked about it being this play within a play or yeah. a dream within a play well, exactly, or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because the Christopher Sly induction scene has this character who has passed out drunk in a pub and some rich guy comes by and says, I want to play a prank on this guy. We're going to dress him up in my clothes, put him in my bed, and when he comes to, we're going to convince him that he's rich and wealthy and then we're going to put on this play for him and it's going to be great and Christopher Sly is obviously very confused when he wakes up because he doesn't remember having a wife and he doesn't remember having livery and he doesn't remember having more than one suit to choose from when he you know gets dressed in the morning and 
if the the that frame narrative leads into act one scene one so it exists outside of the play which is probably why it's very easy to just just cut it out and because it doesn't end there is no return to induction reprise or whatever you want to call it there is no outro for this for this play um you just cut it entirely but i think Taming of a Shrew yep. deals with it. There is an ending to yep. this Christopher Sly bit where they drop him off in front of his house and he thinks to himself, the play that he's just watched has given him the inspiration to tame his own shrewish yeah. wife. Um, but he is this ridiculous character mm-hmm. who's been lied to and is just a bumbling, drunken fool. You're not supposed to look at that and say... Yeah, actually, I'm going to do what that Christopher Sly did, and I'm going to go home and tame my wife. Exactly. You're supposed to say, wow, that's a dumb thing to yeah, do because yeah. Christopher Sly wants to do it, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and that, that totally changes the the interpretation of the of the whole ending of, of everything, right? Yeah. And the fact that it doesn't exist in The Shrew mm-hmm. uh, is, is, I think... For most readers, they'll just ignore the induction entirely. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's one of the things that Ashru would probably have done a lot better is is connecting the two plays. Yeah. Um, because the play within the play of... Which is all Katerina Petruchio, yeah, the like, taming, everything. Like, exactly. That That is the, the majority of it. But I, I feel like the frame narrative does provide a frame in yeah. which, through which to view the... Uh, realism mm-hmm. of the taming mm-hmm. process um, because at the end he believes it was a dream yes. uh, and I feel like that's how the audience is kind of uh, guided to have you should view this as this doesn't really happen guys this yes. is this taming process is stupid and yes. you shouldn't you shouldn't follow it um, but if you ignore that entirely if yeah. you don't even address the induction and if you don't address the fact that this play was ostensibly intended to be a play within a play slash dream within a play then you miss out you start to view it as being this this is real this is how people actually did this exactly is there any evidence that men went out there and deprived their their you know cantankerous wives of sleep so that they would stop being shrewish i mean probably because it was a terrible age to be a woman but at the same time i don't feel like i don't feel like (laughs) shakespeare was necessarily endorsing it that way exactly and it it was yeah. it was it was almost his way of, of finding the balance between um, society will tell you that women should be tamed and this is how you do it. But and then, is that but really is the it? Because I mean, Christopher Sly, you wouldn't trust this guy to like tame a, a I don't know a tame an already tamed cat. Like yeah, there's no way <laughs> he could do any of this because he's no. such an idiot. Uh, maybe you shouldn't. Try it <laughs> yeah, either. maybe you shouldn't try. It. Like exactly. it does it does make it feel even more radical than it already is. When you talk about the things we talked about, the young people bucking social trends, mm-hmm. the women bucking the, their place in society, then you have this Christopher Sly character saying, oh, should women, or making us question, should yeah. women be chaste, silent, and obedient? Yeah. And I think, I mean, again, it's hard to know what Shakespeare was thinking, and there is no ending to this. Yeah. Why? I don't know why. But it was just, did Ben Johnson forget to put it in the, <laughs> the folio? Maybe he or? didn't like it. He's like, no, women should just be tamed. <laughs> but he left in the beginning part, so <laughs> know, what the it, hell? It makes no sense, right? Hemings, Condal, what were they thinking yeah. when they made the folio? But either way, it's it's a really interesting idea, and it and it and that was what first made me think that... Um, we're we're dealing with a play that that begins with the gaslighting of Christopher Sly. Mm-hmm. We have a character in Katerina who is gaslit to the point of 
um, changing her, fundamentally changing her character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it's done out of malice and maybe not malice, but, you know, we're making fun of this Yeah. in, in Christopher Sly's induction. So how seriously can we take the middle part? Yeah. And that's something I, I, I just, I completely forgot the induction even existed. Yeah. So I, I really do, troubled right? me thinking back on the Taming of the Shrew. It really did bother me that, that this play existed. Well, yeah, exactly. When you watch the Zeffirelli yeah. and it's, it's not there, it, it, it takes away a little bit yeah. of, of what the, the entirety of the play could be about. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, this is one of those instances where the, the fact that the folio text is all we've kind of got as, as a complete edition yeah. uh is disappointing because if there was if there was a, a really good quarter out there that was very similar text wise and had just those and other ending. things how much of that would then become the the canon the version? version yeah exactly well and i mean the folio version isn't even the standard version for a lot of these things the romeo and juliet doesn't even have the prologue in yeah. the folio so i mean yeah. it's it's hard to say how no, authoritative of, any exactly. of these texts are we're picking and choosing so if this were put on it's possible and i don't see any reason why you couldn't um take some kind of cues from a shrew or yeah. or something to to maybe tack on at the end to make that feel a little bit more complete yeah um i haven't seen any versions that have done that no there's kind of purity around the text itself as we have it passed down through the ages in the canon so maybe altering that is is against the the code the of shakespeare yeah but um <laughs> the shakespeare code which now sounds like, like a Dan a, yeah, Brown exactly book. Exactly, I was just gonna say. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, that that's that's my thought on it. I don't know. If music be the food of love, play on. And speaking of other uh, plays related to this one, yeah, uh, Lindsay, you found out about a sequel to the Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like Shakespeare fan fiction written during Shakespeare's lifetime, which is really interesting. It was a 1611 play by John Fletcher that featured. Petruchio after the death of Katerina and his second marriage to a woman who then tames him and it's called mm. a woman's prize or the tamer tamed mm. and um and I mean just briefly want to bring it up just because um my interest in fan fiction <laughs> yeah so having well a story yeah. that is that is a continuation of an original story and of course it's hard to say if this was actually like for sure, for sure, based on Shakespeare's play. There might have been a, a original source material or something. Petruchio and Katerina might be like Romeo and Juliet. We just pair them together and they're just the two characters that you would put in this situation yeah. or something. Um, so maybe not. But interesting enough that it's that it's a considered kind of Shakespeare adjacent yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, and it's it's basically the story is, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's remarrying. Yes. Uh, and this time the wife Maria yeah. uh, basically tames him by yeah. mostly withholding sex yes. is how yes. it works out. So it, there's references to Lysistrata uh, yeah. and, uh, and yeah, withholding sex from a man to get him to do what you want. Um, so a different, I mean, it's a commentary on the taming process. It's a, a very interesting reversal of the storyline, which is something that I expect more from restoration comedies mm-hmm. that come after the Puritan yeah. Revolution exactly, and yeah. everything. Um, but it's it's interesting. All the same, I haven't read it. I'm going to look for it and see if I can find it because I would like to read it because I think that's, that's an interesting ploy. Um, but yeah, it kind of advances the storyline a little bit. If it is considered some kind of unofficial sequel Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. It, it's just worth mentioning. Yeah. And you mentioned Lysistrata. I thought there, one last thing about the text itself um, that I thought was interesting, we chatted about it a bit, was there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot more illusions in this than there were in uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for another early work to feature a lot of um, Roman and Greek uh, mythology references yeah uh, references to xanthope and yeah all these, these a lot of characters Apollo from and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah like there's there's a lot of it and i thought that would also actually played into uh uh the frame narrative because mm-hmm. it's almost like shakespeare saying well this is what most people expect from a play is you know high references to from the bible and and yeah. all sorts of other, uh, you know, higher literature. Right. Um, and Christopher, it just all goes over Christopher Sly's head. Of course right? it would. Um, so I think, I thought that was really interesting too, that he, uh, that it's almost a little bit of a commentary on uh, plays of the time as well. Parting such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. So our final question. Yes. That we're going to debate here and now for you um, is... Is it possible to read the ending as satirical? Um, maybe maybe a deeper question might be, should we read the ending as satirical? Yeah. Because I think it's possible to read it as satirical. I think it's possible to perform it satirically. Yes. I don't think the text itself lends itself to that in any way, shape, or form. Okay. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, let's say, should we? Um, I will take the negative. Uh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> harsh. Uh, so in my, my point of view... Uh, the the process of breaking down Katarina is too thorough. Mm-hmm. And uh, that passage that I mentioned earlier about mm-hmm. the sun and the moon uh, is just a little too blatant for, for me to believe that uh, it's not a turning point in her psyche. Mm-hmm. At least when I read the when I read it again, when you, mm-hmm. you see a play performed, uh, it can be turned around a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But generally when I'm reading the text itself and when I... Uh, see a lot of the performances she's still it, it just it's a little too much to believe that she could just uh turn it on and off enough to say it and not mean it um and that's that's kind of my interpretation is just that uh when you when she's got when she's reached that point mm-hmm. i was gonna say when she got into that point when she <laughs> has reached that point uh she she's just a it's been too thorough of a process. Um, it's a very quick one in the play. Yeah. I'll grant that. Um, well, it's only five acts. So you exactly. got to wrap it up. It's got to be quick, right? <laughs> um, but I, and the, the text itself is a little too, um, I mean, and maybe this will go into your point. Maybe you'll make this, this counterpoint, but it's a little too exact in, uh, in how a woman should behave. That this is not something that she's just, that she's planned in advance. It's something that's very close to her heart. Mm-hmm. And this is how she she now uh, understands her place um, after being beaten into it through her experiences. That's my that's that's how it feels to me when mm-hmm. I'm reading the text, especially. Um, but Lindsay, what you what do you think? Well, should the ending be read as satirical? Yeah. Well, yes, obviously. Okay. You dumb dumb. <laughs> because you. I'm a feminist, <laughs> and I think it has to be. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Should is a is a harsh word. I wish I hadn't suggested that. <laughs> um, because obviously, I think it is possible. Yes, it is possible. I, to read I, this will, I will grant that it is possible. And and that's not based on just a strict reading of the text. I think that that when in production, it's almost always done as kind of there's there's, there's a satirical there's, element. Yes, at least, whether yeah. it's very blatant, as in Mary Pickford literally winking at her sister at the end. 
or whether it's a little bit more subtle in, you know, Zeffirelli where Katerina walks away and Petruchio has to chase after her. Um, I think there's an element of, of satire to it mm-hmm. that almost everyone nowadays has to put into it because otherwise this film becomes a film about domestic abuse yeah. and um, yeah, domestic violence and we don't do that. That's just not done anymore. You don't you don't do that. Um, At least you don't portray it in a positive light. No, of course <laughs> not. Of course that would be horrible. And it is horrible. And we are not in any way making light of domestic violence or anything like that. But um, I think the bulk of the play and the way that it's done, I, I have a hard time reading it now without seeing Petruchio and Catherine both as as evenly matched and in need of each other. Mm-hmm. I really do. And so mm-hmm. I think from the very beginning when when you see how um, their very first meeting goes and how evenly matched they are, it's impossible to view this as a power power balance that isn't somehow restored at the end in equally, right? Yeah. And I think that ending is is key to that reading because like I said, there's a trust, a mutual trust that's established between Petruchio and Katerina, which um, is referenced in that falconry imagery mm-hmm. that she is the falcon that's been tamed, quote unquote. Um, so, and then and then you have this trust that's between the falconer and the falcon, and you have this trust between Petruchio and Katerina. But I think on top of that, Petruchio, having gone through this, meeting Katerina and and going through this process with her, he has fundamentally changed too. And I think if he had been exactly the same at the end, is he exactly the same at the end? Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard. On the page, it's impossible to tell. And I think on the page, knowing what I know, I would have to say it can't be. And I would have to agree with you that she's broken and it's terrible. Oh and, my God. Yeah, I know. I win. Savor it, Aiden. Oh, because I, but I'm, so I have to, I have to say that there's, there's no way to put this into production without addressing the fact that, I mean, Petruchio is called mad throughout. He's, he's not someone that is held up as a paragon of virtue himself what business does he have taming a woman anyway? I will I will grant grant you one element from the text. There is a there is the uh, passage where uh, they're talking about they they've I think it's just after their wedding, uh, Petruchio and Catherine, Katerina, sorry, uh, where they've just left and they're describing it off off scene what happened when they mm-hmm. were leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and someone says something like merrily he was cated. Yes. Or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And it really that is a direct line saying like no this is this is a two way street for yes, them yes exactly um the power imbalance though within the text is such that you you don't see much of that but i i agree i think i think even productions back in the day i think probably would have had to have well, featured something here because yeah. otherwise her character is there's no way she can deliver this long it's the biggest speech in the play yeah. there's no way she can deliver it um as a beaten down no individual no, she's some gained of her spirit power has to, yeah, over him in some ways, or yeah. at least she's, and that's why I brought up the fact that she does give this speech, and and it's not halting, it's not, you know, why are you doing this or why, you know, it's very fluid and it's it's 
it's sure she's very sure of herself mm-hmm. and sure of her position and i think that it comes back to Catherine katarina not having that in her father's house because she's under his thumb and her poor sister bianca and all of this stuff is happening with with the the three of them in an, in a rather unsavory yeah, way. Yeah, it's a very unhealthy triangle right? there, yeah. She gets out from under that, and yes, she's transferred over to, uh, ownership of her is transferred to this man who is crazy, but they're evenly matched, and I think that he wants her to um, bestow upon him all the things he believes he is owed, but she does it in a way that um in in a way that is that helps her to assert her power in the way that she can as a wife now, mm-hmm. which is a different status than yeah. a mother or or sorry a different as a status daughter, as yeah. a daughter yeah. or as a single woman as yeah. a maid. As a maid yeah. You have more power. You have power over your household. You have yeah. power over servants who are in your household, and there's there's an evenness to their and i i can't ignore the fact that she says that you like a wife should put her hand under her husband's foot and it's not she's not saying because men will trample on your foot on your hand yeah she's saying a man who's worth his metal is not going to hurt you and you should trust that he won't do that and i think that that is Hmm. is something that suggests hmm. from the text textual evidence that suggests that it's not her being completely beaten down and tamed but that she's learned something and that p- the fact that petruchio doesn't step on her hand or call her names and lets her have this whole big speech she's never spoken this much before nobody has is evidence that he too has learn something about her or learn something about himself or learn something about marriage. And so I think they both grow into this. It's a horrible process and I hate it hundred (laughs) percent, but I think that there's enough in the text that it, it's not, it's, it's how productions can get away with, with making this satirical. Plus with that frame narrative put into place. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard because there's only half of it, but I think the, the intention is there. The intent is there for this to be read as something not realistic. Yeah. And satire in and of itself is something that yeah. plays Confuses with reality. Or... Things, yeah. That's a good point. Thank you. I, uh, yeah. See, I, I have of... those every once in a while. No, you really do. And this one was a very good one because I think you kind of also won. <laughs> so can we both win this one? We can both win this Yay, one. Yay, happy marriage. So whose hand is under whose boot right now? <laughs> we'll do it at the same time, same time. <laughs> same time. <laughs> anyway. To be or not to be. So this was our discussion of The Taming of the Shrew. Thank you, Lindsay, Thank for you, sharing Aiden. your many good points. You don't have just a few. You have many. Aw. See, that's how you win a woman's heart. Compliments. <laughs> Compliments. <laughs> uh, you know, thank you, Aiden, for uh, opening up this space for us to have this dialogue. And, yes, and, and forcing you to watch uh, 10 Things I Hate About You because you love the 90s as much as I do. And <laughs> of course. You, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I don't know what's next on our list. I believe... Uh, Oh, uh, no, we're starting with uh, the Henrys. Three parts of Henry the Fourth. Are we doing them all at once? No, we're doing one play at a time, We are going to all our listeners. <laughs> they have to listen to us go through three Henrys. We are going to make it so exciting. We are going to like get out like action figures 
on a like, podcast on a podcast and have them fight and do Good sounds Lord. and everything you don't know how this works head, no it's gonna be terrible but we're gonna do it because we're gonna get through every play and we've never read any of the henry the fourth never so no. um we'll see how the first one goes maybe yeah. we will combine two and three at the end but the first one we're gonna do henry the fourth part one uh and start the war of the roses and we can talk we can talk i think there's a bunch of history discussion we can have there yes so we'll we'll get into that a little bit Uh, in between then we'll probably have our special episode um not 100 percent sure what that's yeah we haven't decided on the topic for that one just yet but it'll be coming up as well but yeah and we'll we're we're trying very hard to make the special episodes relevant to the plays nearby it so Mm -hmm. um having just done you know women in shakespeare um it kind of fed into you know taming the shrew and yeah. fed from two gentlemen of verona is it going to feed into what's going to feed into the yeah, henry's? henry's it's hard but maybe we'll do like maybe 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 that's what it'll be it'll be a history of the wars of the roses oh that could maybe be that could, that be, that could be interesting well i guess i guess in a couple of weeks you'll find out so stay tuned for that i suppose um until then don't stick your tongue in anyone's tail great advice Lindsay. <laughs> thank you very much you're welcome You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.